Let's turn in our Bible this morning to Luke chapter 9. And we're going to read from verse 51 to the end of the chapter. The Gospel according to St. Luke chapter 9. And we'll read from verse 51 to the end. Let's hear the word of God together. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. And it came to pass, when the time was come, that he should be received up. He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And they did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias did. But he turned and rebuked them and said, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. And it came to pass that as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus said unto him, Foxes of holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And he said unto another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go and bid them farewell, which are at home at my house. And Jesus said unto him, No man, having put his hand to the plough and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Amen. We know that the Lord will start with his own approval and blessing this reading of the Holy Scriptures. Now my text this morning is taken from Luke chapter 9, verse 62. And Jesus said unto him, No man having put his hand to the plough and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. And my theme today in the first harvest service is considering a true and genuine gospel plowman. Now there's only one reference in the whole of the Bible to the word plow, P-L-O-U-G-H. And it's here in Luke chapter 9, verse 62. And of course the Lord Jesus is referring to the first century instrument that was used for plowing up the ground in ancient Israel. There's also 23 <coughs> other references to the word ply. That's the act, P-L-O-W, our pliers, or having fields that are ploughed in the Bible. The vast majority is in the Old Testament. 
The first is Deuteronomy 22 and 10. And the last reference in the Bible is 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 10. But, but there's only one reference to the actual instrument that's used to do the plowing. Now that's interesting, the word plow in the Bible. About last April, I'm out driving in one of the country roads within the community. And a man flags me down. That's a sign, Reverend, you've got to stop. And as he sees me, he hands me a letter. This letter. It's got my name on it, boys and girls, Reverend David McLaughlin. And this is what he said. Read that. And maybe you'll preach on it sometime. And maybe I'll come and hear you sometime. So I took it home. I read it when I was having the lunch. And as I looked at it, it was an article from Farming Life. And it was penned by the Reverend David McMillan, who was converted here and is now the preacher in Armagh Free Presbyterian Church. And it was entitled, and I quote, Plowing a Straight Furrow in Your Life. And I read it. It was an excellent article. It blessed my soul. But it got me thinking of the plow. So the word plow has been in my mind from way back in April, thinking about the harvest service. And I said to the Lord, if I'm living in spared and still in carried off free church, then on the first harvest service, I will preach on the plow. And then I discovered, to my amazement, that there's only one reference in the whole of the Bible to the actual instrument for plowing, and it was made by the Lord Jesus himself. And here it is in Luke chapter 9, verse 62. Now the book of Luke, or the gospel of Luke, is very interesting. First two chapters have to do with the birth of Christ. From chapter 3, verse 1, right up to <coughs> chapter 9, uh, verse 50, has to do with his ministry in Galilee. And then... Uh, from chapter 9, verse 51, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And that brings us up to uh, Luke chapter 19. And then from 19 on to the end has to do with the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. I want you to think this morning of a plow. Remember, to put it in a first century context. I want you to think of a team of oxen, two oxen, maybe four, but usually two, or maybe only one. And it's got a one-furrow plough harnessed up to it. And the principle is to turn the sod in the field. And of course, there's a similar design of today back in the first century. The plough had a nose with a point, and the point would dig and dive into the ground and on the nose of course was a blade that slices through the underside of the sod and then it's got the twisted backbone which is so designed when the ply is pulled forward that the sod is turned upside down so the face of the sod let's say it's grass is turned downward and the fresh soil sits on top and all of this was done by the pulling of a ply by a forward motion Today it's done by the tractor. And today you would have a three or five furrow plough. 
And of course the task of the driver is to keep the wheel in a rut. He looks forward and he keeps it in a straight line. And then of course he's also got to lean back and gauge the depth of the furrow and to keep it level. But in the days of the Lord Jesus, young people, there was no tractors. There wasn't a wee grey Fergie. There wasn't a Massey Ferguson. There wasn't a John Deere. There was no tractors at all. And all the ploughing that was done in the land of Israel, all was done by a team of oxen or one oxen. And the principle's the very same. The principle is to, to turn the sword. And the ploughman, he had to keep his hands, his two hands, on the shaft of the plough. And he must see to the gauge of the depth constantly. He must keep it level when it's necessary. And he must keep it straight. And one of the marks of good ploughing is the straightness of the furrow. If it's a ploughing competition, then the judges don't want to see a furrow that's curved or bends off at the end. No, it must be completely straight from start to finish. The straight furrow makes the ground easier to till and prepare for the sowing of the seed. Now, to get a straight furrow, he must have a firm grasp of the handles of the plough. He must keep looking straight ahead. And he also has to gauge the depth and the level of the plough. He must not look back. If he does look back, the furrow will be in and out, up and down, left and right. And here's the Lord Jesus and he says, No man having put his hand to the plough and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. And the Lord Jesus is using a very familiar farming illustration. He's using language here that the average person in the land of Israel would understand. Remember, he's addressing a first century farming community. And he's saying this to teach them about true and genuine commitment and true and genuine discipleship. He's really saying if you desire to become one of my disciples, if you want to follow me, then I want to tell you this. You cannot be looking back. You must fix your eyes on ploughing a straight furrow in your life. I want you to tell you three things this morning very quickly. I want you to think first of all of the decision of the ploughman. Look at these words. Having put his hand to the plough. Now, now what does that mean? What is that a reference to? I believe it's a reference to the start of the Christian life. It's a reference to the initial saving work of God within the soul. It's God's law work and God's gospel work. God, in amazing grace, brings the uh, sinner the privilege of hearing the word of God. Remember the Bible says faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And as he hears the word of God, something wonderful takes place in his heart and in his life. There's a law work is being done. He comes to this 
conclusion. He has this conviction. I am a guilty sinner. I have broken God's law. He's made to think of the Ten Commandments. He's made to think of them in breaking them in thought and word and deed. See, men and women, by their own standard, feel that they are a good person. They don't understand the law of God because the law of God demands that you be perfect, not good, not sincere, not upright, not honest, but perfect. Perfect on the outside, every word and deed. Perfect on the inside, every thought and motive, and that is for every second of every minute of every day of your whole life. Romans 3 and 20 says, by the law is the knowledge of sin. You see, God's law shows us that none of us is perfect. God's law shows us every one of us is a lawbreaker. God's law shows us that we're all guilty before God. That's why Paul could say in Romans 3 and 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That is, we sinned in Adam. And we also sinned in breaking the law of God. I'm not a good person. I'm a guilty person. Now, I wonder if you've ever come to that conclusion in your life, if you've ever had that thought impressed upon your mind so that it burdened you and upset you. Remember the Lord Jesus said, there is none good but one. That is God. Only God is sinlessly perfect in the person of Christ. Martin Luther, you think about his religious efforts, all that he did in the Augustinian monastery, his fastings, his prayings, his, his beatings, his body, the masses that he said, the recital of the rosary, the, the alms collecting and giving, it didn't make him right with God. This is what he said. What good works could proceed out of a heart like mine? How can I with these works stand before a holy judge? And this law work is necessary. And of course it's absent today from much preaching. But this law work is necessary because it leads to a gospel work. Because once we see I'm not a good person but I'm a guilty person. Then we're introduced to another glorious truth. 1 Timothy 1 and 15 this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Once we come to this conclusion and have this conviction, I'm not a good person, but I'm a guilty person, then we're pointed to Christ, the only saviour of sinners. I must trust Christ. I must receive him as my Lord and saviour. You see, putting your hand to the plough in a spiritual sense, this is the decision of the gospel ploughman. I must make a credible profession of faith in Christ. Doesn't the Bible say in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. All things have passed away and all things have become new. It's God taking out the heart of stone and giving a new heart. It's God taking out a love for sin and the things of this world and bringing us to the place where we turn our back on it. And we've got a new love and a new life 
and a new loyalty. Now I want to ask this morning, is this true of you? Was there a time in your life when you were convicted of your sin? When you come to this conclusion, I'm a guilty person before God because I've broken God's law. And you're being convinced, I need Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior if I'm to be saved and go to heaven. And was there a time when you actually come to Christ and you cried out like the public and God be merciful to me a sinner. And now because you've got a new life in Christ and you've a new love, the love of Christ constrains you and you've a new loyalty to him and, and a new language, you're, you're willing to confess Christ. Listen to what Romans chapter 10 verse 9 and 10 says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, Thou shalt be saved. You see, the true plowman, the true gospel plowman, his motto for life is this, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. And he's fully resolved to follow Christ, no matter what the cost, no matter the hardship, no matter the difficulty. Now you think of a first century farmer plowing with an oxen, and he's got a one furrow plow on and he hits a big stone. That happens, you know, when you're plowing, even today. And it, it knocks you off course. It could even take the nose of the plow. It could break the blade. And you see, the truth is that in the Christian life, it's not all a bed of roses. In the Christian life, there's many heartaches and many headaches. And there's things that happen almost like hit us like a big boulder and can knock us off course. But what does the Christian do? He keeps his eyes on Christ. He's looking onto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He keeps his hands on the plough. Yes, there's many rocky places and rocky patches in life. But that individual perseveres. He keeps on going. He keeps his eyes on the Saviour by the grace of God. Now I want to ask this morning, I'm pressing it home. Are you a true believer in Christ? Have you a credible profession of faith? I want you to examine yourself before God. Have you been convicted and convinced of your need of Christ? Have you called in him? And, and, and if you've called in him, I, I, I want to ask you this. Have you made a confession of Christ? Not only by your lips, but, but, but by your life. You see, the danger is that it's maybe just an outward, empty profession. And in the very context of these words, the Lord Jesus gives three illustrations of three would-be followers. And each of the followers, as we're going to see, had a lack of resolve in the Christian life. They weren't real disciples. I want you to think not only of the decision of the gospel plowman, but I want you to think of the dangers of the gospel plowman. Look at the text. It says, And Jesus said unto him, No man having put his hand to the plow, and looking back. Looking back. See, these three men that he mentions... These three men are three examples of men who lack resolve and commitment to wholly and fully follow the Lord. The first man, he was guilty of the sin of presumption. Go way back to verse 57. 
It says it came to pass that as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. Now, on the surface, that was good. On the surface, it was okay. But when you dig a little deeper, this is a mere outward profession. It's all lightness and froth because the man hadn't thought it through. The man hadn't counted the cost. The man had no real motive and resolve. Now, this man hadn't been called by the Lord Jesus. This man just comes and he says, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. Now, where was the Lord Jesus going to? It tells us twice in the context he was going to Jerusalem. Verse 51, and it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And of course, it's mentioned again, verse 53, that he would go to Jerusalem. This man hadn't thought it through of where the Lord Jesus was going to. He hadn't thought the cost that was involved of following Christ to the end. This man was really full of mere emotionalism. I'll follow you, Lord, anywhere, everywhere. But he, but he didn't comprehend it all. He didn't take it all in. He forgot what's involved. Notice how the Lord Jesus responds. Verse 58, And Jesus said unto him, Foxes of holes and birds of the air have nest, but the Son of Man have nowhere to lay his head. Now isn't that interesting? He said, I have got no bed to go home to. I have got no actual house. It wasn't just referring to the fact he had no bed or, or no house or making the illustration about the foxes and the birds. But he was really pointing out to this man that there's real hardships and difficulty that are involved in being a true disciple of mine. Remember, he's on his way to Jerusalem. The Samaritans didn't receive him or offer him refreshments because he was on his way to Jerusalem. It says in verse 51 that he should be received up. That's not just received up to Jerusalem. I believe that was received up the work of the cross. That brings us to Calvary. That, that, that brings us to the, the um, fact that the Lord Jesus was going to Jerusalem to die. The Bible tells us, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He was going to be hated of man. See, this first volunteer never took into his mind the hardship, the persecution. The way of the cross. He was not prepared to deny himself. He was not prepared to say no to sin. Or to the ways of the world. He, 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 he wanted friendship still with the world. It's interesting that the psalmist said in Psalm 30 verse 6. I said in my prosperity. I shall not be moved. But he was wrong. Because when the time of prosperity ended and affliction came and the bubble burst, what would the psalmist say then? He was moved. It was being like hitting a boulder. And he was knocked off course. Remember Peter? Peter says, Lord, I'm going to the cross with you. 
Lord, if you're going to die, I'm going to die along with you. Lord, others will deny you, but, but I'll not. I'll follow you, Lord. But he didn't know his own heart. He didn't know the deceitfulness of sin. Yes, full of zeal and emotionalism. But that's different because he was guilty of the sin of presumption. See, the Lord Jesus, it wasn't the fact that he didn't have a home to go to that he could call his own and say, this is my house or, or this is my bed. It, it, his mind wasn't on those things. His mind was on, not on the things of time and sense, his mind was on heavenly things. Remember Matthew 6 and 33 but seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these other things shall be added unto you. Isn't there so much enthusiasm today? That which excites the flesh. Many people go to worship services so they can be in a high. Almost like, like, like a drug effect. And isn't there lots of temporary faith? And isn't there... <coughs> lots of temporary discipleship. <coughs> Having a desire to be a follower is not enough. It's too subjective. <coughs> it goes beyond a personal experience. Because many have no deep conviction of the gospel. The root is not in the deep conviction of the gospel truth. How much preaching there is today without repentance, without mention of sin... Mention of the wrath of God. Mention of a life of holiness. Mention of sanctification and separation unto the Lord. What do we get in many churches today? Five steps to success. How to be happy if all else fails. And I'm not knocking these things. These things are okay in their place. But true Christianity must be based in God's revelation. One that's fixed and final and authoritative. And one that centers in the personal work of Christ and his accomplishment of his death on the cross. You see, the gospel stands the test of life. And when death comes and when sickness comes and when illness strikes and when, and when traumatic experiences come, then because we're in Christ, it'll be rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in me. Not only for salvation, but in all the outworking of life. Secondly, the other man, the second man, was guilty of wrong priority. He was called of the Lord Jesus. Look at verse 59. And he said unto another, follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. See, this was a test. Follow me. What did the man reply? Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. But his priority was all wrong. Was the father dead? Was he just an old man that was frail and he had to look after him and take care of him until the end of his day and then bury him? This man had a wrong mindset. His priority was all wrong. Think of Matthew 6 and 33 again. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things shall be added unto you. It's not wrong to honour your father and mother. That's the fifth commandment. It's not wrong to attend to your father's funeral service. That wasn't what the Lord Jesus was saying. He was saying, you've got to put the Lord first. 
the Lord must be at the very center of your lives. Nothing is allowed to take the first place. No excuse will be accepted. This man was saying, Lord, I've got earthly commitments. But no earthly commitment ought to have a priority over the call of God. The Lord is first and center in the life. You think today of culture. You think of career. Think of sporting activities. Think of work-related things. Think of worldly goods and making money. And all these things can crowd into the life and make us guilty of wrong priorities. The principle is this. Nothing takes the center place but the Lord. And anything that makes and breaks your resolve not to put the Lord first, then you're guilty of a wrong priority. Does not apply to Sabbath breakers. Does not apply to the place of prayer. Does not apply to Christian fellowship and a life of holiness. Isn't there a big lack of commitment today, even among we who profess the Lord's name? And we can make excuses. And we can say, but I've got this family commitment. But is the Lord first? Is the Lord the center when it comes to his house, his day, his word, his, his, his cause? You see, the early days of the Free Presbyterian Church, they put the Lord first. The Lord was at the center. And everything else took secondary place to the honor and glory of the Lord. But there's a sea change in the third generation. I say to you young people, resolve to put the Lord in the center. Put the Lord first. Yes, it's good to have our cultural expression. And I'd be the first to acknowledge that. Yes, it's right to have a career. Yes, it's right to have sporting activity. Yes, you must work. Yes, you, you need money to buy things. You can't go down to um, Sainsbury's and say, I'll have a trolley load of groceries, but I've no money to pay. You wouldn't get out the door. But in all that, let's resolve with utter commitment to put the Lord first at the center. The third man was guilty of an attachment to things. Listen to what he said. Verse 61, Lord, I will follow thee. But let me first go and bid farewell, which are at home at my house. He also had a lack of true resolve and commitment. Why? He's attached to earthly things. He's full of earthly mindedness. He's thinking about old friends. He's thinking about former connections. He's thinking about family. There's a softness. There's a sentimentality. There's a hankering back. Notice also he used the word first. But let me first go bid farewell which are at home at my house. What's he doing? He's pining for home. Remember Lot's wife? Isn't that what happened to her? She was pining for Sodom. That was about to be destroyed. Her heart wasn't right. Her heart wasn't in it. She didn't want to go with her husband. She, even though he was a backslidden man, she didn't want to go with him and the angels. The Bible tells us she looked back, became a pillar of salt. In other words, she wanted the old life. She wanted Sodom. Family gatherings, having friendships are not wrong. But think of these words. 
I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. The cross before me. The world behind me. You see, the cross speaks of absolute and ultimate commitment to Christ. And there's no pining for the old life. Remember what Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 38 tells us. I trust him right. Now the just shall live by faith. But if any man throw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. And the apostle James says in James chapter 4 and in the verse 4, Ye adulterers and adult dresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And in verse 14 we read, Whereas you know not what shall be in the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapour that appeareth for a little time, and then vanish away. For that ye ought to say, If the Lord will, we shall live, and do this or that. What about the Lord's will? The will of God is paramount. And there should be no attachment to earthly things. We, we should hold the things of time and sense very loosely. And those are the dangers that efface the gospel plowman. The danger of presumption. The, 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 the danger of wrong priority. Even putting family first. And the danger of an attachment to things. And notice one final thing. The duty of the gospel plowman. If you go back to our text, here's what the Lord Jesus said. No man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. That has to do with the rule and reign of God. In other words, this gospel man has his hand on the plow, both hands, and he's looking straight forward and he wants to plow a straight furrow. In other words, he's got a true focus. And he's got the proper value in view. He's willing to honour the Lord first. And if that means a loss of fellowship. Or even a loss of family. Then the only way for him to live. Is via the cross of Christ. David Livingston. Received a message one time when he was in Africa. And the message was this, that there's loads of individuals, missionaries, willing to come and help you. New students out of the college. And they will come if there's an easy road to where you are. And he wrote back. And this is what he said. I don't want them. If they're only coming because there's an easy road, then let them stay at home. I want people to come when there's no road. I want people to come with a mindset to make a road. I want people who will face hardship, who will take up the cross, who will deny self, who, who, who will live to the glory of God. You see, that's the only way in. Being fit for the kingdom of God. Made right and made ready. Live a life that's decent and honest. Provide things honest in the sight of men, the Bible tells us in Romans 12 and 17. Be marked by honesty. Be marked by humility. Be marked by holiness. And of course, if we're marked by honesty, in all that we say and do, then we'll pay our bills. We'll not be deceitful in any of our dealings. Many, sadly, have little testimony among family and friends 
because they behave deceitfully when it comes to the paying of bills. There's a story told about a guy called William Prentice, a champion ploughman who lived in the Saintfield area. He died at a young age in a tragic accident. And on his tombstone, this is what it says, that he also ploughed a straight furrow in life. That he also ploughed a straight furrow in life. And that's the duty of the gospel ploughman. He's been fitted for the kingdom of God. So he ploughs a straight furrow. He provides things honest in the sight of God. He is honest. He, 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 he's a holy man. He, he, he's a humble man. Let me ask as we finish, how straight is your furrow as you plough the Christian life? You know, one day in every ploughing championship, the judge comes. And he comes to examine your furrow. How straight it is. Is it level? Is it the right depth? And you think of the heavenly judge coming to look at your life and to look at mine. And it's vital that we understand that. Have a true focus. Have a true value. Plan to have a straight furrow. So we're fit for the kingdom of God. His reign and his rule. May the Lord bless these few things to you.